Hi, I am Mark. I am the host of Vancouver True Crime. I want to offer a trigger warning for the listening audience because, again, yes, it's a true crime podcast and I talk about very dark, very disturbing subject matter. I'm a researcher of criminal activity and predators and serial killers. I focus mainly on serial killers and predators that operate in the province of British Columbia, Canada, and specifically the city of Vancouver and the metro Vancouver surrounding area. This uh, series is called The Stolen Sisters of East Vancouver, and this series is going to focus from 1960 to 2022, present day, of predators, serial killers, and abusers who go into this neighborhood and use it as a hunting ground for sexual deviancy, murder, and other uh, abuses. Unfortunately, Indigenous women are are the primary targets of predators and serial killers in this neighborhood. However, women of every color, creed, nationality, skin tone have been victims of predators as well. And also, too, we, you know, we live in a time where we got to acknowledge everyone. And, you know, there's been people of different genders and also sexual uh, persuasions as well that have been targeted by predators. Primarily, though, I am going to focus on missing, murdered Indigenous women and girls who are the primary targets for these types of criminals and predators and 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 for reasons that are cultural and historic these women have become very marginalized and they become attractive to creeps to target and and that is the unfortunate history um, of this neighborhood the downtown east side so when you add up the amount of victims of Willie Picton, uh, Martin Tremblay, who was a predator who targeted primarily, again, indigenous girls who are underage. He liked girls that are teens, broken homes, uh, typically indigenous, who he would lure with drugs, alcohol, and they would be uh, targets of his predatorial behavior where he would get them passed out, videotape his sexual assaults, and sometimes these women would die under the influence of all the drugs that he provided or by overdose. We go into Willie Picton uh, in, in future episodes. I've done a ton of research. Again, the Missing Women Inquiry. Uh, again, about 65 women who lived in the neighborhood of the downtown east side were targeted by Willie Picton. Majority of them were indigenous, but the women uh, came from all walks of life, backgrounds and nationalities and skin tones. In my opinion, um, they all are our stolen sisters. They are sisters, they are mothers, they are relatives, they are women in our community who didn't deserve to be targeted and murdered and being abused by creeps who got away with it for a very long time. This series is going to be about how the court system, uh, policing, the community at large created a perfect environment 
for these predators to operate pretty much with impunity. They were able to operate out in the open. They blended in. They felt very comfortable in this environment to target women, to murder, to abuse, to sexually assault them. And and it went on, and it's going on for a very long time. I document it from both going from the 1960s to present day of women and girls, the people who are impacted uh, by these crimes. For example, recently I posted, uh, a couple days ago, I posted on my Instagram page, Vancouver True Crime on Instagram, about my upcoming a series about the boozing barber. The boozing barber is named uh, Gilbert Jordan. He was a very meek, unassuming, short, chubby man with thick glasses who targeted women with alcohol, offering them money to go drink with them back at his room or his barber shop, only to force more alcohol on them and to the point where he's literally pouring it down their throat and then only to murder and sexual assault them as they blacked out from all the alcohol that he provided them. Um, I I posted this on my Facebook as well, my Vancouver True Crime Facebook, and a woman replied saying, this monster took our mother 35 years ago. So these victims are real people. You know, they are, they, they're these victims, they have family, they have daughters, they had people that cared and loved them very much and missed them dearly. And it is a true tragedy in our country with all our modern day laws and court systems and technology and all those things that we think are, are there to protect us. And it certainly didn't protect them. So my goal with this series is to, one, highlight the monsters that were able to operate in the open and had the comfort to target women and girls with with really nothing really stopping them. Because you look at the numbers that they were able to accumulate. So again... I, I'm going to focus in the next few um, podcasts really on four predators. So in this episode, I'll be talking about Gilbert Jordan, the boozing barber. I talked a little bit about Martin Tremblay, who was a sexual deviant drug dealer, predatory drug dealer who would use drugs to lure underage girls to do very deviant acts on them, film them while they were passed out. So the two, these two people, Gilbert Jordan, Barton Tremblay, their victim pools are in the hundreds. Gilbert Jordan, according to court testimony, from 1980 to 1988, he targeted about 200 women in these downtown Eastside bars to go back with them, pay for sex, to abuse them, to sexually assault them. He was a very prolific predator. So you look at the numbers, uh, we talk about 200 over eight years, that's 1,600 women, according to these numbers, that he targeted to abuse. One man, 1,600 women, 10 women um, believed to be uh, dead at his hands, 
then Martin Tremblay, probably we're talking victims in the hundreds. And then, of course, we're talking about Willie Picton. He claimed he murdered 49 different women and he wanted to murder one more to make it at even 50, plus all the other women that he probably disabused and sexually assaulted. Uh, we're probably talking in the hundreds. And then there's another creep, a man named Don Baker, who targeted women sex workers on the downtown east side to do very brutal, vicious assaults where he would videotape them for his sick pleasure. They identified about 50 women that he targeted. There's a lot, probably a lot more that they don't know about. And he also went overseas to countries like Cambodia, where he targeted nine-year-old children as, a, as young as nine-year-old to, for sexual abuse and, and violence. So four predators who operated from 1960 to present day and look at the size of the victim pool from four people. The criminal justice system was unable to prevent them for uh, targeting all these women. And, and the court system, the way it is, and the way that people who can afford good lawyers are able to manipulate the system to keep on abusing. So we're going to explore all of this uh, in the next few series. And, and it's a true tragedy when you think about it. Four predatory men who targeted one neighborhood thousands of victims in combination and not only this the victims the victims the family the loved ones who had to endure this tragedy and the cost of society the cost on courts the cost for police the cost for um you know even the cost at the picton farm hundreds of millions of dollars to go through that disgusting 16-acre filthy pig farm of manure, dirt, and, and rubbish looking for tiny little fragments of bones to identify the DNA of these victims. A real tragedy, and thank you for joining me and as we break down this very dark and disturbing subject matter together. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Vancouver True Crime Podcast. I am Mark, I am host of the show. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. I appreciate it very much. In this episode, it's part two, The Stolen Sisters of East Vancouver. When I originally wrote this series, I was gonna call it The Monsters of the Downtown East Side. And the whole premise of this series is to show how since the early 1960s all the way to present day that this is Canada's primary hunting ground for serial killers, sexual deviants, predators, and abusers of mostly women, mostly indigenous. However, the victim pool represents women of all races, all skin tones, nationalities and they're all our stolen sisters in this episode however we're going to be talking about a real monstrous little creep called gilbert jordan bald-headed thick glasses wearing meek in appearance chubby middle-aged but he was extremely lethal 
He murdered over 10 indigenous women over a period of time. He was only charged for one, and he did very little jail time for all his monstrous deeds in the downtown east side. I'll be breaking down his actions, the consequences, and the history of this creep that stole many sisters in the downtown east side. So I took a bit of a break to recharge the batteries in the new year. I hope everybody's having a great New Year's and I hope all your wishes, dreams, and desires will come to fruition. I have a lot planned and a lot in store over the next few episodes and One of the things I want to talk about quickly, though, before I get into this episode, is a research that I've been doing about serial killers. I've been doing a real deep dive into serial killers now. Uh, Primarily, I started writing this series uh, in early uh, September, and I've been doing a very deep dive. This is in the topic of serial killers themselves, and... Some interesting things have come to light. So when I first came across this case about Gilbert Jordan, uh, the boozing barber, the man who killed by using alcohol as his primary murder weapon, at first I thought he was kind of unique. Meek in his appearance, again, uh, short, chubby, middle-aged, bald man, hanging around dive bars, harassing and offering women who are down on their luck, alcoholics, money to go party and drink with them, and and paying for sex. So at first I thought this was kind of a unique type of of killer, but quite frankly, he's quite typical. Uh, Most murderers that are serial killers want to operate in their comfort zone, in neighborhoods they're comfortable in, and they primarily use a murder weapon that they're comfortable with. So when we discuss serial killers and the topic of serial killers, what is a serial killer? So just like probably me at first, we we tend to think of a serial killer that hunts primary women for sexual gratification. They tend to uh, strangle some cases they dismember and there's usually a sexual component to their killing however anybody man or woman who kills more than two or three people is classified as a serial killer so there are situations let's say this where let's say a man who gets into a bar fight who's very violent and let's say this he gets into a fight with some dude in the parking lot and he pulls out a tire iron and bashes that guy's head in blunt force trauma let's say he throws a dude in the trunk drives out in the woods and buries that guy that guy goes missing he's never found and that murder goes unsolved that guy drives into another town goes to a bar has anger issues gets into a fight pulls out a tire iron bashes the guy's head in, and goes and buries a guy somewhere in a rural area so this person would be a serial killer but we wouldn't classify him in the we wouldn't think of him in the classic sense of a serial killer however he would still be a serial killer So then there's what's called organizational killers, people who work for organized crime or gangs or even just as individuals, as 
hitmen or sicarios if they're from South America, Mexico, or uh, Central America. Sicario is a Spanish term for a hitman. These people kill for money. I've been doing a lot of research and I've been working on some new material for the series I also do called True Crime Gangster Stories. You've heard some of the interviews with my friend David, who was a hitman for the Colombian cartels, Mexican cartels, and the mafia. According to other hitmen that I've talked to, typically the going rate to be hired to kill someone is about $20,000, typically. More if the person's famous or a politician, or if the person's considered someone that is, you know, of uh, of notoriety, someone that's in the media or something like that, there'd probably be a higher price for them. However, $20,000 could hire you a hitman to kill someone on your behalf. Typically, from my talks with uh, various hitmen that I've talked to, typically what they tend to do is they usually follow the person around when they're driving, when the person parks somewhere, quiet, secluded, and dark, that hitman will appear at their driver's side window, glock at the window in their face before the person even has a chance to react. Pop, pop, pop goes a glock. That person has virtually no defense to it. It's very effective. Just pull up right at someone's window, gun, bang, person's dead off they go sometimes they'll burn the car throw an incinerator device most of the times they just leave the person dead and off they go uh, one hitman that i talked to he said he would shoot them in the whites of the eyes because he knew that they were dead you put a bullet in someone's eyeballs most likely they're not going to survive especially a large caliber like a 40 caliber glock right in the head that person is guaranteed to be dead, and that's that. That's how fast it can happen, and that's how how it usually goes down. I'll get more into that, and I have some more interviews with other hitmen that I'll be breaking down in the near future. Um, so again, you know, most of the times the public won't really put the classification of a hitman as a serial killer but really they are if you kill more than one or two sorry if you kill more than two to three people you are a serial killer then there's like you know back in the day uh i was i found out something quite interesting in the in the early uh turn of the century there was quite a few women serial killers and and these women serial killers this is like in the early 1900s throughout the 1940s these women would go from community in community and marry older men, murder them for their financial means, and then move off to another community. Now, with, you know, internet and being able to tie people uh, to, uh, you know, patterns of murder, they're easier to get caught. For example, if a woman marries a man, murders him, collects the insurance money, and then goes and marries another person, murders him, collects the insurance money, that will be a clear pattern. Majority of people get caught for murder because they murder people that they know and there is a tie. That's why when someone hires a hitman, especially from another province, country, it makes it very difficult to catch them. There's no ties and the person who maybe ordered the murder has a solid alibi. 
and you look at the homicide map that I posted on my Instagram page of Vancouver True Crime, I basically stopped bothering counting. I got up to 550 cold case homicides and and I think that brought me up to about 2018. There's probably another 20, 30 added to that, mostly gang-related. And most of these are people who've been, you know, these are usually gangsters hiring maybe outside other gangsters, hitmen, Sicarios to take out rivals and things like that. So, um, again... You know, we, we look at the phenomena of serial killers and there's a lot of misconception. One of the most misconception is most of these killers do not look like what you think they're going to look like. They don't look scary. They blend in and they can come across quite meek in, in public, just like Jordan Gilbert. Short, chubby, hanging around dive bars, probably kind of nerdy, probably kind of like, you know, uh, from my understanding is this, is that... He was a, a sexual predator. He, he would go to all the disgusting little dive bars all along Hastings Street, find women that were alcoholics, offer them money to drink with him, offer them money to drink more with him. He would either take them to his barber shop, which was called the Slocan Barber Shop on Kingsway Street. He would have free-flowing booze, have another drink, have another drink. Again, these women are alcoholics. They probably were eager to accept, and they probably felt safe in, in, in his presence because he didn't come across as threatening. He would keep offering them booze, and then he would offer them money to drink uh, straight liquor out of the bottle. And, and then he would force the booze down his throat, literally holding the bottle, making them drink more and more as they got drunker and drunker, passing out, blacking out. He would start basically almost like waterboarding them with alcohol until they were incapacitated, unconscious. Once they were unconscious, he usually stripped them naked, uh, had sexual intercourse with them and until they died. Sometimes he would call call in the um, the deaths and report them to police. And of course, he would act all innocent. Oh, we were drinking too much, and blah blah blah. I guess she had too much to drink, and you know, uh, you know, oopsie oopsie, it was all an accident. And a lot of these deaths were ruled as accidental deaths or alcohol poisoning until there was quite a clear cut pattern of it. I'll be getting into his story a lot more, but I just want to paraphrase what his mode of operation was and what I'm also trying to uh, talk about that yes he used alcohol but it's not as unique as you think because killers again they will use what they're comfortable in. Jordan was a heavy alcoholic he was comfortable with booze and he was comfortable drinking a lot of heavy alcohol it was uh, said that he drank up to 50 ounces of alcohol each and every day so obviously he had a high tolerance and and he could probably hold a lot of liquor from a lifetime of, of drinking heavy alcohol. So he was comfortable around alcohol. He was comfortable in the downtown east side. He didn't stand out. He kind of blended in and and he didn't look threatening. Very very classic of, of very of many different serial killers. Willie Picton 
which I'll be doing more in this series about, and I've done a lot of writing and a lot of research about Willie Picton, he would offer drugs, crack cocaine, because again, he, he used these drugs as lures, just like Gilbert used alcohol as a lure. These women were heavy drinkers and alcohol was their primary uh, substance of choice, so therefore he offered booze. Willie Picton offered crack cocaine, heroin, and, and things like that to lure the women to his disgusting pig farm to murder them. So again, um, you, you see what I'm saying here is that he operated in plain sight, just like Willie Picton, and their times even overlap, right? When Willie Picton was active, also Gilbert Jordan was, uh, was very active. So there's usually multiple predators at any given time operating in the downtown east side because it is a primary hunting ground for sexual deviants and predators because again you spend any time there you realize right away the desperation the addiction the mental health issues the poverty is rife for creeps and predators to work openly to target women and primary again as i said indigenous women are primary the targets of these creeps that go into the downtown east side to target women so let's get into uh gilbert jordan a known sexual predator serial killer the downtown east vancouver he operated from 1960s to 2006 so gilbert jordan aka the boozing barber jordan was born gilbert paul essie in vancouver canada december 12th 1931 he was a high school dropout alcoholic by age 18 by 1952 his criminal record included theft assault auto theft and heroin possession this alcoholic barber was linked to the deaths of 10 different indigenous women. Gilbert was the first Canadian known to use alcohol as his murder weapon. His victims were First Nations women who lived in East Vancouver and the downtown east side. Jordan was a heavy drinker, drinking upwards of 50 ounces of vodka every day and a regular in the dive bars along Hastings Street in East Vancouver. Like I said many times already, Gilbert Jordan was short and chubby, bald head, and thick black-rimmed glasses. With his meek appearance, he would offer money to women to drink or have sex with him. He plied her with lots of free-flowing alcohol in his barbershop or a hotel room that he rented. He would offer more money if she could chug straight liquor out of the bottle. When she passed out, he forced more alcohol down her throat and sexually assaulted her as she was passed out or even dying. He basically, it was pretty disgusting, like he would literally almost like waterboard them with, uh, with bottles of vodka, like pouring alcohol down their throats. So he was quoting the saying, the following statements, sober people wouldn't go out with me. So I didn't have many options, he explained during his trial. He didn't want to drink in his room all by himself. Or, they were, all on the, they were all on their last legs, he coolly told a Vancouver reporter in 2000. 
I didn't give a damn who I was drinking with. I mean, we're all dying sooner or later. So Jordan had no empathy and had zero regard, like most predators, for his victims. Jordan learned the barber trade during one of his many stints in prison. He owned the Slocan Barbershop on Kingsway Street. It is now a dance ballerina shop. According to his statement, he paid for sex with over 200 women a year. Most of the deaths were declared accidental overdoses of alcohol, even though Jordan was with them at the time of his death. He reported many of his deaths himself. The victims were indigenous women who suffered from alcoholism. So again, he would, uh, when they'd wake up, the women would be dead, naked, in bed with him and a lot of times he would call the police or he would call his lawyer first and the lawyer would make a uh, nominous police report to the Vancouver police. Talking though, in 1961, so we're going to go into his criminal history and uh, 1961 he was arrested for kidnapping a five-year-old child, an indigenous girl from a reserve near Mission, B.C., which is approximately, I would say, about an hour, an hour and a half drive from downtown Vancouver. Vancouver police officers noticed a suspicious car parked on the side of the road. They pulled Jordan over, and they peered inside to see a 29-year-old Gilbert with a 5-year-old Indigenous girl. He kidnapped her. May of 1961, all charges were dropped, a stay of proceeding. So again, I explained a stay of proceeding in the last podcast, but I'll explain it one more time. Charges are stayed when a judge or a crown decides that it would be bad for the justice system for the case to continue. This means the issue of guilt or innocence is never determined. Stays can be granted when the state has acted unfairly, including failure to bring the case to trial in a timely manner. January 5th, 1963, theft and sexual assault. Jordan lured two women into his car with an invitation to drink and party with them. He picked up two First Nations women from a bar in the downtown east side to drink with them. They drove to Coal Harbor by Stanley Park, and when one stepped out of the car to smoke a cigarette, Jordan drove off, leaving her stranded with her purse in the car. He drove the other woman to North Vancouver. Jordan sexually assaulted that woman. The police charged him with sexual assault and theft. He was convicted on the theft charge, but acquitted on the sexual assault. Christmas of that year, heavily inebriated, he threatens to jump off a bridge at Lionsgate Bridge. Jordan's longtime criminal defense lawyer was called to talk him down off the bridge. It caused a big traffic jam and, and a lot of commotion. Jordan was found in contempt of court in North Vancouver for saluting a Nazi-style Hitler salute. Sieg Heil yelled out at the judge in the courtroom. Judges weren't too f happy about that. The judge wasn't too happy about that, charging with contempt of court. April 28, 1965, one of his first alcohol poison victims a telephone switchboard operator named Ivy Rose Oswald. Her nude body was found in a hotel room on the east side of Vancouver. Ivy Rose's death was considered accidental, even though 
her blood levels were through the roof at a 0.59. She was seen in the company of Gilbert all night. Her murder was just the beginning of a series of killing for which Jordan always eluded punishment. A few days after the murder, Gilbert Paul Essie applied to change his name to Gilbert Paul Jordan, and it was approved. So he did this to avoid detection with future encounters with the police. So when he would hand his ID or be pulled over for his numerous drinking and driving charges, they wouldn't tie him to previous murders. So 1971, Vancouver, B.C., committed an indecent act in a public place, charges were stayed. Up in Mackenzie, B.C., which is in the northern part of the province, he was convicted for indecent exposure. 1974, Prince George, B.C., convicted of indecent assault, sentenced to two years less a day, which came to a sentence of just two years in prison. Crown Council wanted him declared as a dangerous sex offender upon his release in 1976. The Crown tried to have him declared as a dangerous offender, but Jordan's lawyer intervened and the request was denied. In 1976, Jordan was examined by a forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Tibor Bezzaretti, as part of a court proceeding. Dr. Bezzaretti diagnosed Jordan of having an antisocial personality disorder and defined as a person whose conduct is maladjusted in terms of social behavior, has very little disregard for the rights of others, and which often can result in unlawful activities. Jordan learned his barber trade while in prison, and he opened the Slocan Barbershop on Kingsway Street. Jordan uh, inherited a sum of money, and even though he looked like an alcoholic, disheveled barber, he was actually quite savvy in the stock market, and he made a lot of money through savvy stock investments with the inheritance and the money he made through uh, picking the right stocks. He could afford the very best of criminal lawyers, and this kept him out of jail a lot of the time and also, most importantly, prevented him from being declared a dangerous offender, which he could have been locked up indefinitely, and it would have saved a lot of people's lives, as we will continue. So, 1975, the boozing barbers back on the street. This time, he abducted a woman from the mental institution, Riverview. The police charged him on several counts, including kidnapping and sexual intercourse with a feeble-minded person. That was a law back in the day. I don't know if it's still on the books, but yes, he got convicted for having sexual intercourse with a feeble-minded person. He was sentenced to 26 months for assault. Court proceedings showed he sought out approximately 200 women per year for sex, for binge drinking episodes, and this period covered from 1980 to 1988. Further, the Crown provided evidence that Jordan was linked to the deaths of six other First Nations women. Similar facts of evidence showed that Jordan has been... So, Crown... Jordan 
was with the following women at the time of their death. First, Mary Johnson, November 30th, 1980, at the Elmer Hotel. Her blood level was 0.34. So typically, 0.8 is the illegal limit if you're driving, and that's roughly give or take how much you weigh and how much you space out your alcoholic drinks. On average, I would make about four or five drinks. So if you had four or five drinks and went behind the wheel of the car, you'd blow over and you'd be charged with impaired driving. So Mary Johnson had a blood level of 34. So 08 would get you arrested for drinking driving. She died because her blood level was 34. Barbara Paul, September 11th, 1981 at the Glenard Hotel. Her blood level was 0.41. Mary Johns, July 30th, 1982 at the two, at, sorry, at the 2503 Kingsway Barbershop. That's his barbershop. His barbershop was located at 2503 Kingsway. It's now a ballerina school. And she was found dead in his barbershop with a blood level of 0.76. Patricia Thompson, December 15, 1984, at his Kingway barbershop, once again, her blood level was 0.51. Patricia Andrews, June 28, 1985, again, at his Kingway, Kingsway barbershop, her blood level was 0.79. Vera Harry, November 19th, 1986, at the Clinton Hotel. Blood alcohol level, zero, sorry, 0.041. Again, at his, this at his barbershop, Three women died between July 1982 and June of 85. Although Jordan reported the deaths after consulting his lawyer, he escaped investigation when the coroner ruled all three accidental deaths by alcohol poisoning. The victims were known alcoholics and sex workers and at high risk for such fate, according to them. Jordan did come under suspicion in 1987. He spent the night of October 11th drinking with a female companion at the Niagara Hotel Room in Vancouver. Several times Jordan went out to buy more booze and at 6 a.m. October 12th he left the hotel for the last time. At 7.40 a.m. police received an anonymous phone call in the room at the Niagara Hotel, they found the naked body of Vanessa Lee Buckner, who was age 27. Buckner sometimes worked as a sexual, as a sex worker part-time, and she was known for being a moderate drinker. Her blood level was a staggering 0.91. So again, if 0.8 makes it illegal for you to drive, 
and you almost have 1% alcohol in your blood. As I said, he basically waterboarded these women with alcohol. During the trial, the court would hear Jordan poisoned her, sexually assaulted her, left her to die as black fluid oozed out of her mouth and nose. The father of the victim expressed his outrage when the case went to trial. He's a worm, he said in an interview with the Toronto Sun. He's a lowlife. He should be squashed, just as he squashed a lot of girls' lives. Court documents described Vanessa's death as a result of Jordan supplying a lethal amount of liquor, who died as a result. Jordan's fingerprints were also found in a room and linked to Buckner's death. Eleven days later, another woman, Edna Shade, was found dead in another hotel room. For eleven days, police watched Jordan. During that time, during that time, Jordan took four intended victims to hotel rooms in the Vancouver downtown east side. Each time police interrupted the drinking binges after being questioned, Jordan had not been charged with any crimes related to Buckner's death. Police initiated surveillance on Jordan. October 12th and November 26, 1987, Police watched him search out indigenous women in the downtown east side. Police would rescue the women before she or they would become Gilbert Jordan's next victims. These women were Rosemary Wilson, November 20th, 1987, at the Balmoral Hotel. Blood levels, 5.2. Verna Chartland. November 21st, 1987, at the Pacific Hotel, blood alcohol levels were 0.43. Sheila Joe, November 25th, 1987, at the Rainbow Hotel, blood levels were unknown. Mabel Olson, November 26th, 1987, at the Pacific Hotel, blood levels unknown. Two of the women had blood levels between uh, 0.52 and 0.53. Police arrested the boozing barber as he was poisoning his latest attempted victims. She had lost consciousness. When the police entered the room, Jordan was laying on top of her, forcing the contents of a large bottle of vodka down her throat. Like I said, he basically used the vodka as they were passing out, and he was like waterboarding this, pouring it right into their mouth as they were trying to breathe. Um, what's interesting, too, that... There was a show in Vancouver based on um, cases uh, that are, were historic in Vancouver. It was called Da Vinci's Inquest. And they did a Boozing Barber uh, episode. Da Vinci's Inquest is based on a real-life character. He was a uh, the former mayor of Vancouver. His name is Larry Campbell. And he was the mayor of Vancouver. He was an RCMP officer, and then he became a coroner. So this series was based on his life and and they would use like cases that were in the media and the headlines and newspapers and they would incorporate in, into the show. So they had a boozing barber uh, episode and in the episode 
they show the scene where the police come in as he's under surveillance and he's just forcing booze down their throat. Like he would, he would really try to get them really hyped up to drink. Like he would really, uh, uh, offer them here, 20 bucks to another shot, 50 bucks for another shot. Here's a hundred bucks down the, down the whole bottle. And, and again, you got to remember these women were marginalized, desperate for money, and and so here's a guy's offering them hundreds of dollars to drink alcohol, right? So it was so for these women that were marginalized in the downtown east side, alcoholics, you know, it was it was too tempting. And and as I get it, they get more inebriated and more inebriated, he became more and more forceful with the booze. So police investigators believe that he was linked to about ten uh deaths of of different women that they know about. So there's probably a lot more, again, because this guy was a very um, active predator, reaching out and searching out over 200 women a year that he would pay to have sex with, forcing booze on them. There's probably a lot more victims, right, if you just do the numbers. So they can they think that there's 10 for sure that he was with them at the time of their death, known for giving them booze and, and all that. So... He was charged for seven uh, deaths, but he was convicted only in the deaths of Vanessa Lee Buckner. He received 15 years for manslaughter, but again, because he could afford the very best in legal defenses and lawyers, because he had the means and money on appeal, Jordan succeeded in reducing his sentence to nine years, but only served six. In reducing the sentence, Justice Sam Toy wrote, although the appellant has left a trail of seven victims, the last was the first occasion when a person in authority in a forceful and a realistic manner brought to the appellant's attention the fact that supplying a substantial quantities of liquor to women who were prepared to drink with him was a contributing cause of their deaths for which he might be held criminally responsible. This similar fact evidence was important in the 1908 trial when Jordan was tried before a judge alone. Justice Brock found Jordan guilty of manslaughter in the deaths of Buckner. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison, and like I said, it was reduced down to nine. He served six for manslaughter on his conviction. After his release, he was placed on probation, which restricted him to Vancouver Island, which he moved after he was let out of prison. In June of 2000, he has been charged with sexual assault, assault, negligence, causing bodily harm, and administrating a nauseous substance, alcohol. In 2000, Jordan attempted to change his name to Paul Pierce. At the time, a name change in British Columbia did not require fingerprinting or a criminal record check. After the loophole was closed, he dropped the application. So again, he would kept changing his name. So when he was out being a predator, it would help him elude detection. 
Jordan again was arrested in 2002 for breach of probation because he was found drinking in the presence of a woman while in possession of alcohol against his, his conditions. He was found guilty and sentenced to 15 months in jail following three years of probation with strict conditions. However, on August 11, 2004, he was arrested in Winnipeg for violating his probation order for an incident at the York Hotel in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, August 9, 2004. He has been identified as being a party to binge drinking with Barb Buckley. Buckley was a long-term resident of the hotel who had a serious drinking problem. Buckley was taken to the hospital by her friend and hotel employee. After finding Buckley in very bad condition, he, w- he was identified, Jordan was identified as being there, but of course he was acquitted of those charges in 2005. Upon his release, police issued a public warning. On February 3rd, 2005, the Saanich Police Department issued a alert warning the public to be cautious of a recently released Jordan. And this is what they wrote. Jordan Gilbert Paul, age 73, subject of this alert. Jordan, Jordan is 5'9", weighs 174 pounds. He's partially bald with gray hair and a gray goatee. He has blue eyes, wears thick glasses. Jordan is currently in the Victoria, B.C. area and has no fixed address. Jordan has a significant criminal record, including manslaughter and decent assault of a female. He uses alcohol to lure his victims. Jordan's target victim groups is adult females. Jordan is subject to court orders conditions including abstain absolutely from the consumption of alcohol, not to be in the company of any female person or persons in any place where alcohol is either being consumed or possessed by that person or persons. If you observe this subject in violations of the above conditions, please call Saanich Police Department 911. So, so talking about serial killers and the reign of terror so basically from early 1960s to right to the very end when he finally died in 2006 this guy went on a reign of terror and you know he was very uh very deceptive moving from different jurisdictions changing his name using the law losing the lawyers uh to basically get away with all his monstrous crimes. He was comfortable drinking. He was able to lure them into an isolated area, to like a hotel room or his barbershop, get them completely loaded to sexually assault them and to ultimately murder them. And he got away with it more times than we can possibly know. We can, again, uh, tie him to about 10 deaths, and I'm pretty sure there's probably a lot more. You know, there's probably a lot more women that he murdered because he didn't stop. You, you look at these numbers, he, every opportunity that he had to get a woman drunk and murder them, he would take that opportunity, no matter what kind of parole conditions or... Um, uh, 
even under police surveillance, he's getting women drunk and trying to murder them. So again, this kind of sheds light into the system. The system tried to declare him a dangerous offender that could have locked him up indefinitely. Finally, he dies in 2006. May he rot in hell. And I, I want to say my condolences to all the women that he murdered and died at his hands. And I want to offer all the family and loved ones my sincerest condolences. I'm so sorry that this monster has caused your family pain and trauma. I'm going to continue on with this series in part three of the Stolen Sisters of East Vancouver, we're going to start stepping into the realm of Robert Picton, which is Canada's, probably Canada's worst serial killer, far as number, scale, horror, and depravity, and for amount of time that it was allowed to take place. So it, it's it's a it's a massive story. It's a massive undertaking, and it will be multiple parts as well. I'll... Again, thank you for all the support. Uh, podcast is doing amazing on multiple podcast platforms. Uh, it's it's making some pretty decent ad revenue on some of the podcast platforms. I'll be starting a Patreon account to help. Uh, uh, you know raise some revenue and uh in the that revenue i raise i'm going to be start doing a documentary series video series it's something i planned from the very beginning i'm excited i'm working on some sponsorships i will be keep on expanding on the different social media platforms and numbers on instagram facebook uh various podcast platforms like spotify itunes uh, Google, Apple podcasts are doing extremely well. Uh, very happy, very pleased with the reception. And like I said, I'll be starting a Patreon account to start uh, selling memberships to help fund uh, some documentary series. Like, for example, I want to do a Highway of Tears documentary. I know the area quite well. I've traveled up there quite a bit. And I think it's important to show the scale and the geographic location of the Highway of Tears for the person to really feel the true horror of that situation. I'll be doing documentary series also uh, from in the downtown east side, showing the the different, uh, the actual environment. Until you see the environment of what it's like, you can't really truly get an understanding of the horror there. Plus some missing person cases that I've been following for quite a long time. I think it's important to, to show um, from the viewer point of view of 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 what of 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 the location and and the 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 sheer mind boggling uh when these people go missing and how there's absolutely they disappear without a trace and there's no logical explanation for why so many people in British Columbia go missing without a trace and we'll be breaking that down soon so extremely excited to uh, make these projects come alive. I couldn't do it without your support and help. And the support and help has been truly amazing. And it allows me to put so much more effort and work into this platform. Uh, I'm really making an effort to try my best to have a weekly podcast. I've done a lot of writing, so I have the material. Uh, Before, one of the issues that I was having is when I do... The amount of research that I do, 
I can't do a podcast because I'm doing research or I'm doing writing. I'm not doing, uh, if I'm not writing, I'm not doing the podcast and, and vice versa. So I've done a, quite a lot of writing. So I have a lot of material in the pipeline. The, the, the podcast I get asked about a lot when I don't put them out regularly. My DMs get constantly uh, filled with inquiries. When's the next podcast? I'm very happy and very honored and pleased that people like listening to me telling my crime stories and telling my perspective of crime and true crime in the city of Vancouver in the province of British Columbia. It's, it's been really amazing. I've talked to many people around the world and many people are fascinated by what's going on in British Columbia and in Vancouver, Canada with the levels of missing persons, serial killers and the strange cases, you know, there's a lot of strange cases. Like I was just saying earlier, I could make a podcast every week for the next decade and I could barely scratch the surface for the amount of amazing, strange, mysterious and heartbreaking stories that have taken place over the many, many decades here. So again, thank you so much. I am Mark. I'm the host of the show, Vancouver True Crime. Please add me on Instagram on Vancouver True Crime. Send me a message of what you like, what you don't like. I'm always happy to talk to you. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Take care.